Genesis 37. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colours. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered round it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, the eleven stars were bowed down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Verse 18. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, cast him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colours that he wore, and they took him and cast him into a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by. And they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. The second part of our reading is from Genesis 38 verses 12 to 30. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adullamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. She took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Sheila was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, 
Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adullamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, Where is the cult prostitute who was at Enam at the roadside? And they said, No cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamer, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by her immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Sheila. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labour came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labour, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterwards, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Thank you very much. Um, why don't we pray as we come to God's word? Father God, we do praise you so much that in your word you show us who you truly are. We show you that uh, you show us that you are work at work in the mess and that you are using this mess uh, to bring about your plans and purposes for our good. And we praise you for that. Amen. Well, I imagine uh, when many of us come to the story of Joseph, we can't help but think of Lloyd Webber's famous musical. So I thought we'd start with a few words uh, and how the musical opens. Uh, so this is, this is from the first uh, kind of uh, big summary of what's going to happen in Joseph the musical. Uh, and I'm not going to sing it to, to save your ears from my dreadful singing voice. Uh, they say this, we all dream a lot, some are lucky, some are not. But if you think it, want it, dream it, then it's real. In the story of a boy whose dream came true and he could be you. Now we might listen to that and it might bring back happy memories of uh, listening to the musical, going to see it. And yet, if we think about it, it doesn't really reflect the kind of story we've had read to us here. See, we, I, I guess we also know that even life itself doesn't really come down to luck. Our, our dreams don't really just become reality. Instead, I think the story of Joseph, it shows us a very different kind of world, doesn't it? A world that is full of mess, uh, a world that is full of conflict, even within this, this family. And actually, what we get to see instead 
isn't that the, the dreams and realities of humanity are what become reality, but instead it is the dreams um, and thoughts of God that become reality. Now, they're the things that will shape and will go on to shape uh, this world. And actually that's wonderful news for us uh, this afternoon. Wonderful news uh, amidst uh, uh, the mess of a pandemic, uh, amidst all the fear and the death, uh, because actually God's intention is for a world with none of that. Uh, no need for hospitals or hearses. It's a world that he created in the beginning, right at the start of the book of Genesis, Genesis 1, a world that was very good, a world that he made through his word. And yet it was a world, wasn't it, that is, is marred by human sin. So Genesis 3, very quickly, Adam and Eve uh, fall away, fail to, to follow the Lord, to, to see that he really is good, and they believe a lie. And so instead, what we end up with is the world we live in, the, the world of Genesis 37 and 38. And yet the story of Joseph, and I hope this is what we're going to see as we, we go through this term, is that God hasn't given up on this messy world. In fact, God is going to use this mess to achieve his plan. That's the whole point of the story of Joseph. God works through the mess of human sin to achieve his plan. If, if you remember nothing else from this talk, that's the thing to remember. God works through the mess of human sin to achieve his plan. Uh, so why don't we start with the mess in our first point. Uh, God works through this messed up family. And here we're introduced to Joseph. I don't know what you think of Joseph. Um, to me, it appears like he's a bit of a precocious kind of 17-year-old daddy's boy. He's very full of himself, isn't he? And you could see it's causing a massive problem in the family. And actually that, that problem is made far worse by his own father. Uh, because like the whole of Abraham's family, well, Jacob has his favourites. Joseph is number one. Uh, you see it in verse three, if you look down. Now Israel, uh, that's what Jacob is called here. Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. And he made him a robe of many colours. As you can see, imagine the scene, they're, they're all sitting down for dinner and all the brothers are scowling at Joseph because he's got this kind of ridiculous robe on. It's like a neon sign that says, my father loves me more than any of you. I'm number one. But I think the odd thing here is that God seemingly makes it worse for Joseph, doesn't he? So we see that in verses 5 to 11 where we get these extraordinary dreams and yet I wonder if we, we saw the, the effect of these dreams. So it says that Joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. So you get these incredible dreams, you know, the, the brothers, even his own father is bowing down to him, uh, represented by the sheaves of corn and the, uh, uh, the sun and the moon and the stars bowing down to Joseph. And yet at the end of it, all it causes is jealousy between the brothers, uh, so much so that they hate him and they had this desire to kill him. Uh, we haven't had all, all the passage read to us, but you see that what ha happens in between in verses 12 to 17 is that God is drawing Joseph to the brothers. And when the brothers see Joseph walking from afar, verse 18, they want to kill him. You can see that all of this kind of, um, kind of, 
pressure and all the, the power that Joseph feels like he has is resulting in his family fracturing uh, in this kind of murderous jealousy that we see in the brothers. Uh, the, these people who are, who are meant to be the bedrock of all that God is doing in the world. Uh, you can see that um, wonderfully though, there is a providential intervention. So verse 25, they're, they're plotting to, to take his life, but wonderfully a group of wandering traders just happen to go by. This is, this is God kind of making sure that his man uh, doesn't get snuffed out too early. And you can see that as they see this caravan of Ishmaelites, they have another idea. So uh, Judah pipes up and says, well, we shouldn't kill him. We should just sell him into slavery. That's a bit of a better idea. And you can see how twisted the, this family is, that, that slavery is looked on as a kind of kindness at this point. Uh, of course, as they discuss it, they don't realise that Joseph has already been hauled out of the pit and is on his way to Egypt. So what do the, what do the brothers do? Well, the next part of their plan, well, it's kind of solved one problem, Joseph's gone, but what are they going to tell their father? And so what do they do? Well, they deceive their father. And they slaughter this goat and they cover the special robe, the robe that caused so much jealousy, with its blood. And we're left wondering, this is meant to be the family that God is working through in the world. And this is God's chosen people. And yet I wonder if we've, we've seen that they're, they're boastful, they are hateful, they're proud, they're deceitful, they're envious. And I think for us, actually, that is a comfort. It seems like a strange uh, thing to think, but it's a comfort for us, isn't it? That when God looks at people like this, uh, he cares for them, but he still chooses them. And he chooses to bless the world through a family as bad as this, as wicked as this. That's the kind of people he deals with. Uh, not, not good people, uh, but bad people. But I think even greater than that, this story is showing us a wonderful truth that, that sin isn't more powerful than God. That despite all, the, all the, the kind of wicked acts of the brothers, they can't thwart God's plan. And they can't thwart what he wants to do uh, through Joseph, which eventually we're going to see in the life of Joseph is to save the entire land of Egypt from famine. And I think for us, it's, it's great that we can recognize this in the world, in a world like ours. I wonder if sometimes we look at this world and it feels like God's fallen asleep at the wheel. I had a friend who used to pretend to do that to his wife. Um, it was very cruel. They used to go on family holidays. And after a long time in the car, his wife would nod off next to him in the passenger seat. And he would uh, take that opportunity to kind of slouch down and close one eye. And when she woke up, she would wake up to see her husband seemingly asleep at the wheel. She would scream. Uh, he would laugh. Uh, it was a great amusement to him. And supposedly he still does it to this day. Uh, it feels quite cruel to us. But... I wonder if sometimes we imagine that God is a bit like the husband. He's fallen asleep at the wheel. And when we look over at him, particularly in a global pandemic, uh, particularly when we think of the, the struggles that our, our country is going through, the kind of hypocrisy and racism, the deceit, the, the brokenness, I wonder, do we panic a little bit? Do we scream out and we look over because we think God has lost control? Well, the story of Joseph is is here to teach us that God hasn't fallen asleep. God doesn't even pretend 
to fall asleep. Now he is driving the world towards its final destination, which is to remake it through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's driving it to the fulfillment of all his promises. And he's doing it through this particular family, this family that he will use to bless the world. And that's, that's our second point this morning. It's a messed up family that will eventually bless the world. And that brings us to chapter 38. Um, now, 38 is a, is a perplexing chapter. Many people struggle to see why it's here, because if you read through from 37 through to 39 and you skip chapter 38, well, it makes perfect sense. You, Joseph's taken to Egypt and then we return to Joseph in Potiphar's house. And so the narrative seems to take a sidestep to focus on another of Jacob's sons, Judah. And Judah has a particularly prominent part to play in God's plan. And he is a man who is, is blessed by God. But is this who you expected to meet? Uh, Judah, who in verses one and two, we didn't have them read, but he's, we meet him going in the wrong direction. He's going towards the Canaanites to find a wife. And this is a real problem for Judah. Uh, because in God's um, plans and in the family of Abraham, the Canaanites were God's enemies. Um, the, the people of God would have, would have nothing to do with them. They were particularly wicked people. The kinds of things they did would, um, would repulse us. And you could see that the result of all this is in verse 7. It says this, but Ur, which is one of Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And so the Lord put him to death. And the issue is that now, because Ur is, has died, um, his wife Tamar is left widowed. And so we see in verses 8 to 11 that another of Judah's sons, Onan, is meant to take responsibility. It was the custom of the time that another of the bro brothers who was still alive would fulfill his duty and would, uh, would uh, marry Tamar and raise offspring for his brother. And yet he can't be bothered with that anymore. Uh, he doesn't want children. And you can see it's an issue because the children of this family are special. Any offspring that come from Abraham's line are the promised people of God's. This is the family through whom God is, is focusing his blessing on the world. So it's important that they, they have offspring. They should multiply, fill the world and bless it. And yet here we see Tamar is left a widow. And Judah, rather than stepping in, rather than doing what he should do in his, uh, as his duty, instead of verse 11, this is what he says to Tamar. Remain a widow in your father's house till Sheila, my son, grows up, for he feared he would die like his brothers. You see, Judah is, is actually scared of Tamar. It's like she's kind of cursed or something, um, worried that she will kind of kill off the rest of his family. This is a man that is very far from trusting God's promises. And yet Tamar, amongst all this, this mess, all this evil, well, she does at least try and do something right. She wants to have offspring. Of course, the way that this happens is kind of truly awful. I mean, it adds to just the kind of the weight of this passage. And I guess we, we look at it and we think, how on earth could God possibly work through these means? And yet we see that as Judah kind of thinks that Tamar is a prostitute, as he kind of pays her, as they go through this, this horrible act, well, through all of this, God is bringing about offspring for Abraham, for his family, this blessed 
people. Of course, it doesn't mean that what they did was, was right. Uh, and you can see in verse 24 that the, con the consequences of sin. It says this, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. And moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. And I guess for us, we read this and we're meant to think that's outrageous. This is Judah's fault, isn't it? He's the one who's meant to be burnt. He's the one who deserves to be put to death uh, for his wickedness, for the way that he's acted in his family. And, and you can see that all the things that he gave to Tamar, he, he gives this kind of these representative objects that show him his identity, this signet, this core, this staff. Well, actually, in the end, they all uncover that it was him who, who perpetrated all this. And so verse 26, Judah has to own up to what he's done. And in fact, he comes out with this, these incredible words. Uh, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila, and he did not know her again. It's the moment when the light goes on for Judah. He sees his wickedness in denying Tamar, his other son, uh, of helping her out in her time of need, this poor widowed woman. And Judah begins to, to see his own wickedness and his own evil, the part he's played. And we get this this wonderful glimmer of hope that maybe God can change people like that. People as bad as Judah, that he can use these circumstances to transform a people for himself. But even greater than that, we, we get this, this glimmer of hope of, of what this will result in, this awful act. As we see these two boys fighting in the womb, that's where the story kind of leads us to. Uh, two boys fighting who will come out first. Now, this is sound like an odd thing, but in Abraham's family, it was quite normal. So Jacob and Esau, they were just like this. Uh, and always in Abraham's family, it's the younger that comes out on top before the elder. And it's through this younger brother that God is going to choose to bless the earth. Because from, from this child called Perez, this person we meet in, this baby we meet in verse 29, will come a descendant called David. And from his line will come a long-promised king, uh, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Tamar's name uh, is actually in the genealogy of Jesus. You can go and read about it in the Gospels. This Canaanite woman, uh, who was not part of God's people, who deceived Judah, well, she is used by God to bring about his Messiah. Why? Because, well, God is at work through the mess of human sin to achieve his plan. And we see that Judah is as bad and as sinful as they come. And yet here's, here's an astonishing truth. If you, if you go all the way to the end of the Bible, if you read Revelation 21, where we're told that Judah's name is written on the gates of heaven, or on a gate that leads into heavenly Jerusalem. And that the name of Judah means praise. And whenever we read this name, Judah, throughout the story, we're meant to be thinking praise, praise the Lord. And I think that shapes our response to this story. It's meant to call us to praise God, that he doesn't just deal with sinless, perfect people. He deals with sinners in a messy world. He deals with us. And he can use all this mess uh, all this sin, uh, all the, the brokenness we see around us to achieve his plan, uh, to bring about a world like no other uh, through his king who comes from this family line.
Uh, I hope that is a great encouragement to us this afternoon and a reason to, to praise God uh, that he is still in control and that he hasn't fallen asleep at the wheel, that his plans and purposes for his glory and for our good will be achieved because he's in control, he's sovereign, he's king. Shall I pray as we come to an end? Father God, we thank you so much that uh, you are in control of this messy world and that you can use all the mess. Uh, you can use this messed up family that we read about in the story of Joseph uh, for the, the good of your people and for your glory. And we thank you so much that you are bringing this world to a point where you will renew it and remake it so that it is perfect. And we thank you that gives us hope. It gives us reason to praise you and that you really are sovereign and in control of all things. And we pray this in the precious name of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.